For those of us remaining, uh, let me invite you to stand as I read Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, will be our passage this morning. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with a lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child should put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ Community. My name's Pat. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. As always, it is a privilege to speak to you from God's Word. And also, as you see, happy Advent. Depending on what faith tradition you grew up in, Advent may be exciting. It may be foreign or possibly even boring, though I hope that changes. The word Advent means arrival. In particular, when the Christian church refers to Advent, we mean the Advent of Christ, or the arrival of Christ. Jesus, the very Son of God, was born a bit over 2,000 years ago to a virgin woman named Mary. All of history had been pointing to the arrival of this baby Jesus. And after 33 years of life and ministry, Proclaiming the good news in the word of God, Jesus was crucified. He died and he was buried. Three days later, the grave where he was laid was found empty. And the scriptures tell us that he was raised from the dead. After seeing about 500 people, Jesus, the resurrected son of God, ascended into heaven to take his rightful place with God the Father, on the throne as king, king over all creation. And now, we, his people in this world, await a second advent, a second arrival. The advent season is set aside in the church with great anticipation and longing, the longing for Christ to arrive again when he will will usher in his kingdom, where he will wipe away every tear, where sin and death will be no more. I, for one, cannot wait for that day. 
This morning, we begin a four-week Advent series. And as we just read, this morning we are in the book of Isaiah. Allow me to pray for us again. Father, thank you. Thank you that you came once, that you willingly gave your life for those who would call you Lord, and that you are returning. Over this next month, as we prepare a day to celebrate your birth, God, would we grow in our love for and intimacy with Jesus. Thank you for being with us here by your spirit. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, many of you, if you know me at all, know that I really enjoy uh, following politics. So much so that I'll often post, and some of you have been there, debate-watching parties when major elections come around. I am looking forward to 2024. What typically happens is that two candidates will spar on a stage talking about all the ways that they are going to save America from the evils of the other party. If he gets elected, he'll hurt the middle class. If he gets elected, he'll take away your freedom. Fear, fear mongering, is what works in politics, at least on the public stage. You find an issue that connects with your base, and the candidate convinces them that only they can save the people from their own personal hell. People vote sometimes with hope for change, but many times out of fear. Can they count on the newly elected politician to save them from their personal pits of despair? But here's the thing. I'm sure you would agree, and we all know this to be true. There is no easy, great choice on any election night. There are only two people who can be certain, we can be certain, will fail us in some way in the future. Only two people who you can be sure will make poor decisions that hurt people sometime in their term. The rulers of this world, save none, going all the way back to biblical times, have been incapable of remaining faithful to God's call to lead the people with righteousness. Even King David, the man after God's own heart, made some terrible life decisions. This morning, as we celebrate the season of Advent, the prophet Isaiah is going to give us a picture of a better king, a better ruler whose reign is unlike any the world has ever seen or would ever see again, a reign that would bring restoration to a broken and tired world. To give some really brief context, since it's a couple verses in a very large book, a little context on our passage this morning, the imagery immediately before chapter 11 is really helpful to us as we look at today's text. Chapter 10 includes some massive indictments against mankind. Let me read chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. It says this, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There's a picture here, the end of verse of chapter 10, of a barren wasteland with everything chopped down to the core. And it's God that's actually doing the chopping. And what's being portrayed here is the pride 
and the arrogance of man. The Christmas message this morning doesn't have lofty Christmas trees. Rather, it is a barren land full of stumps. The great in height will be hewn down, the lofty will be brought low. You see, the king of that day, Ahaz, wanted to make an alliance with Assyria, a massive force at that time, because he was concerned about defeat from the armies to the north. When faced with peril, he decides to seek help from the most capable army around. What's so noteworthy about this idea is that God said not to do that. Back in chapter 7, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz, basically telling him to trust in God, that God would be their defense. They didn't have to go and find a better strategic alliance, but as history has it, Ahaz didn't listen. And what actually happens is that God uses Assyria to make a point. Ahaz wanted to rest on the help of a foreign nation instead of trust God. And so what does God do? He levels that foreign nation. Once a strong force, now pictures as stumps in the ground, passing judgment on Ahaz. If we actually consider the world in which we live, it doesn't look much different. We live in a world where we can, you and I, achieve, or at least attempt to achieve, anything that we have money to pay for. The leaders of the world, by and large, as I'm sure we do, look to themselves for wisdom, And no matter how hard they try or how benevolent they may seem, they will always end up harming someone and failing somehow. But the good news is, the very good news for us is, this will not last forever. Right after the picture of a barren wasteland, we read of hope. Though the strongest of all nations at the time could not help God's people, there is hope for someone who can Chapter 11, verse 1, what we just read says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you're unfamiliar, Jesse was the father of King David. That's important because of the promise found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, where God says that he would raise up an offspring from David's line who would establish a kingdom that would have no end. This is speaking of the Savior King who would come to rescue God's people. In fact, the whole of chapter 11 is speaking of the character and the reign of Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to see why Jesus is qualified to rule. Then we're going to see the characteristics of his reign. And finally, we're going to see what that reign will actually be like. Ultimately, this morning, I hope that you will see this. Jesus alone is the only true ruler and the hope of all nations. The picture in Isaiah is that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from the mowed down wasteland of failures of David's line. But, good for us, unlike kings before this king, he would bear fruit. From a field of stumps, as far as the eye could see, comes a small, lone, single branch that will bear fruit. See, instead of trusting that God would be his provision, Ahaz looked to the strength of man. and God wanted no part of this, so he chopped down the giant Assyrian nation as a sort of judgment over Ahaz and the people of God, and they had nowhere to turn. Then, 
up from a mowed down stump comes a small, lone, single branch. A single branch that will bear fruit that only God himself could give. We'll look at what this fruit is in a moment, but the assurance that he would bear fruit can be found in verse 2. It says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, Matthew records that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, came down to rest on Jesus. And the voice of God proclaimed, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The person that Isaiah has in mind as he writes is the very Son of God, who was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And just so we're clear, Jesus said that this was talking about himself as well. In the book of Luke, chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus quotes the 61st chapter of Isaiah. He knew his Bible well. And this is Jesus himself quoting the text, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. See, he would be anointed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. Now, I am presently 40 years old, and I've been a follower of Jesus for about 20 years now, maybe a little more. I think I have the ability, with God's help, to give wise counsel. That is, in line with God's word. But... I am not God, shocker, and I am not the creator of wisdom. And no matter how hard I try, whatever so-called wisdom or counsel I have to offer is always subject to error. And it is entirely dependent on God, who is the only perfectly wise one. But the one who is coming is the very Son of God. And the vision that Isaiah has is that he is utterly different than all other men all other leaders, all other rulers and kings. He has the ability to lead with the perfect and full and complete wisdom of God. In verses 3 through 5, we see some of the distinctions about the promised Messiah Jesus. Verse 3 says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. See, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that unlike the rest of the world who can believe that it is a burden to do what, is, what God's word says, the upcoming Messiah will take great joy and delight in doing all that God has said, in walking uprightly before him in all of his ways. That will be his joy. The second part of verse 3 says that he will judge the masses, but not by what his eyes see and not by what his ears hear. And this is interesting. In my work as a counselor, I've been involved in several cases of mediation. Two parties get together who have conflict that feels relatively impossible to reconcile, and they present their cases. I sit with them, I hear from them, and in some cases I watch the nonverbals, how they respond to accusation or insult. And in the end, I try, to the best of my ability, to present a fair and generous review of the situation. But no matter how hard I try, I'm going to judge people by their appearances. I'm going to be swayed by my own opinions, my own biases, and my incomplete understanding of the situation. This is not true with Jesus. He does not need to hear, and he does not need to see. 
The very Son of God, anointed with the Holy Spirit, judges perfectly because he knows the heart. He sees and hears according to the perfect wisdom of God, not contrived wisdom of man. Because Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, because he has a perfect fear of God and the perfect spirit of wisdom, counsel, and understanding, we can expect that his reign will look very different than others. Look at verse 4 to see the characteristics of this reign. See just how different it will be. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. All over the world today, no matter how hard the rulers of our nations try, the poor, the weak, the lowly, the marginalized, they are all inevitably treated without equity. Not all of the time but certainly without fail at some point. But Jesus will judge the poor with perfect righteousness and the meek with equity. When Isaiah mentions the rod of his mouth, we're to understand that to mean the very words of God. What Jesus speaks is by nature righteous. The Apostle Paul actually uses verse 4 in 2 Thessalonians, which it says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. See, this ruler does not fear men. He's going after the wicked with perfect righteousness. When Jesus speaks, the wicked are silenced. Do you know what he's armed with? Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He's armed with the belts of righteousness and faithfulness. The way that Isaiah communicates here, it suggests that the the Messiah by nature is righteous and faithful. Just imagine for a second a world that is ruled by one who is perfectly righteous and faithful. There's so much injustice in our world. And I actually believe that much of it is perpetrated by well-intentioned individuals, myself included. The ways in which I rule imperfectly are glaring. As I thought about this, I just have to consider my own home. You've probably been in similar situations if you're a parent. There have been several times over the years where I have doled out discipline to my boys for what seemed like blatant disobedience. But then one of them comes to me later in the day and explains the situation more clearly. And I realized I was wrong. I wasn't slow to anger. I wasn't understanding. I wasn't acting with wise counsel. I was not acting with righteousness. I was quick to judge by what I saw. That's just my home life. I've been an elder at this church for years, and over that time I've made decisions in interacting with church members and even fellow elders that have, that have caused hurt and pain. I don't believe I've acted maliciously, but I'm just full of sin. And I don't have eyes to judge without seeing and ears to hear without hearing. Take that to a global degree. Recently, leaders from many nations of the world gathered to tackle the issue of climate change. And I know that's a hotly debated issue for many reasons. But I generally believe that many of the leaders gathering together, at least in part, want to do good. But I can't help but laugh when I think of the futility of a group of leaders 
And I'm not saying it can't be helpful, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that God won't use those leaders for the common good of mankind, but they are not our saviors. They are not going to set the world right and bring about world peace. They're instruments in the hands of a sovereign God, just like Assyria. They're no more capable of leading the world with perfect wisdom and righteousness and equity than I am of doing that perfectly in my own home. But according to Isaiah, there is one who is able. The coming Messiah, anointed with perfect wisdom by the Spirit of God, will delight in fearing the Lord, judge the peoples with equity, stamp out the wicked, contend for the weak and the poor, and do so with righteousness and faithfulness, unseen in the history of kings and rulers of the world. I, and I hope you do as well, want to follow this man. I don't know about you, but I long for that reign. Why is this good for us? Well, because the fruit that this type of king will produce is world-altering. Quite literally, Jesus is the only one who is qualified to rule the entire world. And when he does, finally, everything will change. Everything will change. Look at what happens starting in verse 6. And as I read this again, I would invite you to allow your mind to paint this picture. It's filled with vivid imagery. Verse 6. When he comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on Adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The imagery here is meant to be startling. Imagine taking your newborn child and placing it over the hole of a cobra. Imagine a helpless lamb resting his head on the side of a lion. I have a 22-pound dog named Max, and the one thing I can't do is leave Max unattended in my backyard at night, because if I do, the coyotes will come and eat him. Imagine a world where there's no hurt, there's no destruction, the word that comes to mind when I read these verses in Isaiah is probably what you're thinking. Peace. There is a picture here of something that we all long for. The end of fighting, fighting for rest, fighting for safety, fighting for security, fighting for peace. Listen to what Ray Ortland Jr. said about this, this reign. He said, the victory of Jesus will be the awakening and purifying and restoring and gladdening of all things human. His kingdom is the only final answer to poverty, hunger, injustice, illiteracy, and all the other sorrows we have created. His grace will add sparkle to World Cup soccer, classical guitar, business ventures, monopoly with kids, every human to the greater glory of God. All of our existence is plagued with chaos, which is the opposite of peace. And we can point to wars around the world that are fought today to see it. The 
people of the world are at odds with each other. And Isaiah is suggesting that there is coming a time when all of this will be put right. Restoration of this broken world is what all of us long for. How will it come? How will it come? Well, Isaiah tells us at the very end. He reads this, verse 8. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Hurt and destruction will cease to exist when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. Full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. In other words, everywhere. But when will this be? Well, if I peek ahead to Isaiah chapter 65, we get some clarity. He writes this, chapter 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy. That's pretty much exactly what we just read. And if I look one step further, in 65, verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. As we said over the last few weeks, there are two advents. There's the first advent, where Christ came. God became flesh and dwelt among us. But there is a second advent where Christ will come again. And that is what Isaiah has in mind here. When Christ returns to reign in power, everything will be restored and made right. And just so we're clear, he's not calling a meeting of all the powerful nations of the world. Rather, he himself will rule over all nations of the world. Look at the final verse in this section, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The rule of our king, King Jesus, when he returns, is a global rule. It's a global kingdom. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 32, we hear these words from Jesus. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Isaiah painted this picture of the one true Savior King coming up as a small, lone, single branch from a mowed down stump. In a similar way, 2,000 years ago, a child was born, weak and helpless in a stable. To the watching world, this looked like a horrible way to bring help to God's people. But that child, the very son of God, the very image of the glory of God, would one day carry a cross to the top of a hill and allow himself to be killed as a punishment for our sins in our place. On the cross, we see the signal to all peoples. Come all nations, it says. See the great love with which God loved you in the giving of his son, and bend your knee to him. Isaiah proclaimed that peace would come when the whole earth was full of the knowledge of the Lord. That began most clearly for us when Jesus was born. And one day, Jesus will return, and the entire world will know in an instant who he is. Imagine on the day that Christ returns in the clouds. Imagine that the leaders of our world are meeting. They're talking about climate change. They're talking about humanitarian aid. They're talking about income inequality and global trade deals and poverty and a host of other things. But is there delight in the fear of the Lord? 
I don't pretend to judge the hearts of men, but the present rulers of this world will be put to utter shame on that day if they do not bend the knee to the one who will come, who will one day finally judge the nations with righteousness and rule with faithfulness for eternity. As I stated at the beginning, Jesus is the only true, true ruler and the hope of all nations. So it is with us. He is our hope. So ask yourself this, what things or people are we looking to, to give us protection and the appearance of peace? What or who is it that has our allegiance? Where is our hope placed? How do we respond to this vision from Isaiah? Let me offer two things to consider. Number one, it's the call to bend your knee to Jesus. A simple definition of sin is simply that we bend the knee to other things or people. It's easy for anyone to say, yeah, Jesus is a great guy. I follow Jesus. But then to act as if he's not the sovereign king of the universe. You and I are just like Ahaz, who have a tendency to not listen to God. And we are just like the many flawed leaders of this world. If we seek to order our lives or our homes or whatever spheres God has given us to manage without seeking wisdom, counsel, and understanding from God, if we seek to order the spheres of our lives around anything other than Christ, we are bound to hurt ourselves and others. We are going to fail because unlike Christ, we are plagued with sin. However, for those who have trusted Jesus, We've been given the very spirit of God. We've been given the very spirit of God that will help us to understand all that is in the word of God so that we can walk uprightly with him. Second thing, bend the knee to God, but then live to make him known. Jesus, the root of Jesse, says that he's the signal for all nations. The earth will not be completely full of the knowledge of the Lord, as Isaiah writes, until Jesus comes back to judge the world with righteousness. But until that day, Jesus is still the king of all nations. Now, he is on his throne and he is ruling and reigning. Jesus is still the king, beginning with your neighbors, co-workers, your families. He will reign, finally. And when he does, hear this, he will not battle the forces of evil like the leaders on earth. That's good for us. He will destroy them. But until that day, Jesus is calling all nations to worship him, to receive good news that God came, a man, and died in our place to save us from the destruction caused by our sin. So the call here, bend your knee and spend your life screaming, the good news from the mountaintops. As we enjoy this month of the Advent season, I pray that that would be true of us, that we would be a church fixed on Christ, longing to make him known to those in our homes and to those in our community. I pray that our hearts would be fixed on God's ultimate provision for our deepest need that we would look to Christ and rejoice in the coming of our King and that we would long, long 
for his second coming. And that longing, we continue to be a light of the message of hope around us. Please pray with me. Father, I'm grateful. I love the beginning of this season as we come off of a national celebration of Thanksgiving. There is nothing that we have to be more thankful for than a child who came, the Son of Man, to give his life as a ransom for many. God, would you cause our hearts to be stirred, to long for your return. God, cause us to walk uprightly with you until that day. Increase our hope, increase our joy. I ask in Jesus' name.